Welcome to Talking Robots, the podcast with an inside view on the science, technology, and business of intelligent robotics. Hi, I'm Sabine Howard from the Laboratory of Intelligent Systems at the EPFL in Lausanne, Switzerland. Today we'll be talking to Daniel Wilson. Did you ever fear the big bad robots depicted by Hollywood movies might become reality? Probably not, but just in case, Daniel can provide you with some tips on how to survive a robot uprising. Hi Daniel, welcome to Talking Robots. Hi, thanks for having me. Since this is a phone interview, I can't tell if there is a blinking red light on you. So just to be on the safe side, how would you go about detecting a hostile robot over the phone? Uh, well, to detect a robot on the phone, probably the easiest thing is to try to evoke some emotion out of the person that you're talking to. Um, you, it's, really, it's, much, it's much more difficult for a robot to, to put emotion into its voice, and it's much, much more difficult for a robot to, to decide when it should put emotion into its voice. So, you know, just tell a gross joke or something and see what happens. Okay. That, that robot laughter is always a dead giveaway, you know. The sort of, yeah, ha ha ha. <laughs> okay, I ask you this because you are the author of a very funny book on how to survive a robot uprising. So can you describe to our listeners what this book is about? Uh, so, sure. I was a graduate student at Carnegie Mellon Robotics Institute when I had this epiphany that the world really needed a guide on how to survive uh, if and when the robots run amok and start killing everybody. And I was luckily in uh, the exact perfect position to provide that knowledge. So I just basically took all the, all the Hollywood scenarios of robots killing people. So if you imagine a Terminator or you imagine HAL 9000 or all these other scenarios that are out there in the public consciousness, and I went through and solved each of them like a puzzle just by interviewing the roboticists who are in charge of solving those problems, um, like Locom like you know, bipedal locomotion uh, for a Terminator, or vision problems, or speech recognition, or speech synthesis, for instance. And uh, yeah, and I threw it all together into the guide called How to Survive a Robot Uprising. What was your motivation in writing it? Anger, yeah, pure anger. I was really annoyed by how often robots are portrayed as evil in the media. It seems like they're always worried about killing a person or killing everybody or whatever, if you look at Terminator and Matrix and everything. And so I thought I would strike back in my own way by essentially just taking all that stuff completely seriously and saying, okay, fine, what if there was a Terminator? How would you trip it up? Could you outrun it? Could it, you know, could it run faster than your car? Stuff like that. And I thought that by taking it totally seriously, it would become absurd. You know? and, and to me, it did. So... Whenever you really consider it, it becomes very absurd. Of course, you know, a lot of people take it pretty serious, even, even though the book says humor on the back. One of the things I like about this book is that the tactics which are used to overthrow the different types of robots are, are truly based on facts and robot weak points. Uh, where did you get all these ideas from? I... My advisor at Carnegie Mellon uh, is a guy named Chris Atkinson, and he is a humanoid robotics researcher half the time, and the other half the time he does smart houses, which was where my research interests were at. And so, honestly, I ended up spending 
five years building houses. You know, they don't really look like robots. They just, it's just a bunch of sensors and some artificial intelligence in a box. And honestly, I was kind of jealous of everybody who builds mobile robots because that's what people think of when, when they think of a robot. And Chris always had legs around or, or humanoid torsos that could, you know, play air hockey or marble maze or you know, juggle and really cool stuff like that. And so immediately I just started talking to Chris about humanoids because, you know, clearly, according to Hollywood, they're the biggest threat. And I, I spoke to my office mate, Garth Zeglin. And once I started talking about it, I started getting some really cool, interesting facts, you know, that I wouldn't have thought of. Like I had them thinking about how, how big a humanoid robot could get. You know, could they get as big as like in Star Wars, you know, where they're walking along the battlefield? And I mean, it was really interesting to me to hear these guys who are, you know, MIT grads, trained, this is what they do for a living, really thinking about this stuff for real and giving me real answers. And so that's where I started, and then I just spread out from there to uh, Metton City in the um, nanorobotics laboratory at CMU. is also a really good resource. But eventually, I just went uh, and just took, you know, the journalistic license and started emailing and calling everybody I could think of that did cool research. Just so we get an idea, can you present your favorite robot attack and evasion tactic? Well, my favorite one, and you'll notice that this section is um, slightly longer than the other sections by like two or three pages, is, is how to escape from a murderous smart house, right? Because that was, that was my thesis area. Actually, my thesis was called uh, Assistive Intelligent Environments for Automatic Health Monitoring. But with that kind of thing, you just flip the switch from maximize happiness to, to maximize pain and horror, and then there you go. And so basically this is a situation like HAL 9000 where you have your house, which is monitoring your every move day after day in order to build a pattern of what you do so that it can, uh, so that it can tell what you need before you need it and, and do whatever you need. Um, in my case, it was to help elderly people live independently without getting hurt. Uh, and then suddenly it decides to kill you, right? And so you have to escape. And so my advice was to, first of all, you've got to think ahead. You've got to have a book, first of all, and then you have to have uh, sort of a stash, like, a, like an earthquake stash of supplies, you know, and so you've got an axe, so you can knock out sensors and bust through walls, and you've got, um, oh, flashlights and things like that. You need to, you know, the house will probably try to distract you with loud noises or sounds, or it may even try to use evil robot logic, that's all caps, there's another section on evil robot logic, too. Uh, so you really got to have all this. And, and then once you escape, you know, once you get outside, you've got all your family members together and you've managed to get out of the evil house, you got to be on the lookout for evil robot lawnmowers, uh, evil unmanned grand, ground vehicles. They can be tough, too. So really, the fun never ends. You just recently released a new book entitled Where's My Jetpack? So, so where is it? Jetpacks, sadly, have not developed much since the 60s. So there are a lot of people that can provide you with copies of the original Bell rocket belt, which was invented in 1961 by a guy named Wendell Moore. And actually, it's, it's been really fun. Basically, Where's My Jetpack was another book that was written out of anger. <laughs> This time, a sense of entitlement about the future that I thought I would have by now, which included me flying a jetpack everywhere. Uh, 
Um, obviously, I don't have that, so I got angry and went and looked for it. And now that I have, and the book is out, I actually have gotten emails from people that are involved in these different things in ways that I never imagined, that I could never track down when I was researching the book. And For instance, I got an email from a guy, one of the original engineers on the first, uh, on the first feasibility studies for, for the, the original Bell rocket belt. And what's so cool <laughs> is that the, the only jetpack that really exists was basically developed by a rocket scientist who previously specialized in rockets that went on wingtips of aircraft that flew really, really high where there's not a lot of atmosphere. And this guy literally just took a small rocket, it's called a small rocket lift device, and put it on his freaking back and uh, just ignited it, you know. He tethered himself to the ground first. And that kind of blows me away. That's, that's some, you know, badass science right there. Did it work? Yeah, it did for 30 seconds. That's the, uh, that's the major drawback, aside from the, the deafening roar of the, jet, of, the, of the rocket and also the superheated exhaust, um, which requires that you put on a flashy, heat-resistant, you know, unitard, <laughs> which I see as another perk of a jetpack. Okay, so obviously you were very influ influenced by science fiction, I guess, uh, during your PhD, etc. So how do you think that science fiction influences science in general? I think science fiction has a huge influence on science, always. I think it affects really everybody, too, not just the scientists. I mean, with all these really optimistic predictions from the 50s, it kind of paints a portrait of a future that whole generations come to expect that they're going to have. You know, it's not like just one or two scientists are, are inspired by some random technology and try to make it come true. It's like a whole society says, bubble cities, that's where it's at, you know, in the future. Um, but in terms of specific scientists, that, that's something I learned when I was researching how to survive a robot uprising, is that almost every scientist I spoke to, if they didn't actually write science fiction in their spare time, had some kind of science fiction that really inspired them. And sometimes it was really specific. It was, they were really trying to make a robot with the capabilities of a Terminator, or, or they were trying to replicate something. Um, you know, not always. They didn't usually want to make it evil. As far as I could tell, most people <laughs> might have been inspired by evil robots, but they only wanted to create things that were going to do good stuff for people. So I think that what happens is, You get science fiction, and it sets up some kind of target for people to hit, and then over the years, they head toward that, and as they get closer, they generally realize that it's an awful target, and no one really wants that technology, and then they come up with something that's actually useful. And I guess it goes the other way around. Science also influences science fiction and gives new ideas to writers, etc. Yeah, sure. I've started, for the last year, I haven't been doing much research. I've just been writing, and... I've found that people are starved for that. They, if you have a PhD in something, they, people want to know the, the nitty-gritty. They want to know the real, uh, what do they call it, verisimilitude? <laughs> um, the, you know, the, the truthful stuff. And so if you have those details, people are desperate to get those. They really want to be informed by real science. And so then, you know, of course, you end up with people going to the, to the logical conclusion of, of whatever technology other people are working on. So, you know, this happened with 
like uh, nanorobotics with uh, some William Gibson Idoru, right, where you've got buildings that are just growing and all kinds of really cool stuff. Of course, <laughs> there was that case where Eric Drexler predicted that nanobots would um, would culminate in a gray goo scenario where they just sort of replicate without without end and turn everything into a shifting gray mass of nanorobots. And uh, then one of the princes in England issued a decree that that everyone should steer clear of this, <laughs> this real potentially threatening future in which nanorobots kill everyone. Uh, so, you know, sometimes the science fiction can kind of get out of hand and actually hinder scientific efforts. I think Drexler actually went back in and said that he was sorry he ever thought of the Grey Goose scenario. Okay, so you started talking about the future here already a bit. So now let's uh, let's talk about your future first. So what, what do you intend to do? You want to keep writing books or movies or go back to research? Well, I'm trying to, uh, trying to maximize my 20s, right? <laughs> And I'm almost done with them. So ideally what I could do is, is all three, right? That would be terrific. Um, but right now what I'm doing is I am, I sold a movie to Nickelodeon. I'm writing a movie, which is really fun. It's and completely a novel experience, you know, flying to L.A. and meeting with producers and, and uh, hammering out plot details and, and trying to be funny and, and smart. Uh, tough, but also really fun. So I'm writing movies this year, and I'm, I'm trying to uh, sell a novel. And I'm also writing grant proposals <laughs> to see if I can continue my research. So we'll see what pans out, you know. All of this is very similar. You know, you write a proposal for some work you want to do, and then somebody uh, with more money than you decides whether or not you can do it. So to some extent, it's out of my hands. So on the scientific side now, uh, in all areas of robotics, where do you see the biggest potential? Where do you think the biggest advances will be made? Uh, in the near term? So, well, let's say in the next 20 years. Well, I think that right now the, the most advances are, are occurring really, gee, I would say locomotion, you know, is a... Is a area where a lot of work is going into, but, and, and I think we're likely to see that really soon. Like, I think that the, some of that stuff is getting mature enough that it's going to start being embedded in products, you know, so legs <laughs> on, uh, you know, legged robots, I think are going to become more common pretty soon. And it's going to have a big impact because it's really amazing to, to watch a robot walk, no matter how many times you've seen it. But I think that in terms of just technological advance uh, over the next 20 years, probably the sensing capabilities of robots, just the whole gestalt uh, of, of being able to visually see a scene and identify objects in the scene, segment them out, figure out what they are, uh, figure out where they're going, what their intentions are. Um, just for a robot to have some kind of situational awareness um, that's meaningful, I think that's really going to contribute to, to whether we start interacting with mobile robots in our society um, commonly in the future. Because if we can't get all of that working together, we're going to have real trouble. And I think a place to, to look for that is just the, uh, the DARPA, the upcoming DARPA Urban Challenge. This is something that a lot of unmanned ground vehicles are going to have to do so that they don't run over pedestrians or whatever DARPA throws at them. Uh, in, the, in the next, this fall, you know. 
So I'm really looking forward to seeing how that goes. What are the limits and challenges for this to be achieved? Uh, well, you know, I think that <laughs> probably this is not a fun topic. This is kind of a boring topic, but the, the biggest limitation I see in terms of having robots show up and start doing what robots have always been predicted doing, you know, in, in science fiction, are batteries, you know, power transmission and power generation. Getting, the, uh, getting out of the vicious cycle where you have to have a battery in order to power a motor, but the motor has to lift the battery, so you need a bigger battery <laughs> but, you know, uh, to power the bigger motor, but then the battery's heavier and so on. So, I mean, nobody, I, I wish that someone would, would come up with some, some great ideas in that area so that everybody else's really cool research can start working for longer than five minutes. Uh, without overheating or, or exploding. Let's look 50 years from now. Um, so in what, in which fields will robotics have had the biggest impact on our lives? Which field of robotics? Well, yeah, how will robots have the biggest impact on our life and our everyday life, basically? Yeah, I don't know. You know, 50 years is a really long time. So I guess I'll still be alive, right? So I can just imagine <laughs> how my life will be in 50 years. I know from my personal experience, I'll be elderly, <laughs> and I know from my personal experience in, in research in, that a lot of research right now is going toward robotics that can take care of the elderly when, they, um, when everybody retires really soon. We're going to have a huge number of baby boomers, a big, number, a big proportion of the population is going to retire, and there's nobody there to take care of them. And the same thing is happening in Japan and Western Europe. And so a lot of research dollars are going toward taking care of them. So what this means is assistive robotic technology. So this means exoskeletons to support our, our physical bodies. These are just robots that you can step into, and you know it looks like a pair of robot legs or robotic arms that you kind of put on like clothing, and they bolster your uh, ability to walk or stand or, or whatever. And then there are also... Uh, cognitive aids. So this can be outside your body. So there's technology embedded in smart houses that will help you remember how to wash your hands if you're having trouble doing that, or help you remember what you were doing or what you should do next, or who's waiting and, and, and you know, what's going on. And there's also cognitive aids that go on your body. And this is, a really, this is an area that I'm really looking forward to watching develop over the next 50 years. And uh, so, for instance, this would be like a cognitive aid where you have a camera that's embedded in your reading glasses and it recognizes faces and then it whispers the name of the person you're talking to in your ear. And this kind of stuff is, is probably on the horizon right now, but I think it's going to fundamentally change the way we all interact with each other when we have these little devices that are whispering information to us. And, and another area, I might be going on a little long, but another area that I I just can't wait to see what's going to happen, is, is with the physical uh, augmentations that people are in, incorporating into their bodies right now. So, for instance, there's a guy named Oscar Pistorius who was recently in the New York Times. He is a, an Olympic sprinter who was born without feet, and he uses cheetah brand carbon fiber blades. These are just these prosthetic feet, that, and he runs... He's like a, you know, one of the top ten fastest human beings on the planet, and he wants to be in the regular Olympics. Right now he's in the Paralympics, and they won't let him because they can't tell whether he's 
whether he should compete with humans, <laughs> uh, with regular natural-born humans. And so watching how this plays out between augmented humans and, and regular humans and how our social structure changes as people who were formerly disabled become super able, uh, that's just really exciting for me to think about, I think. Okay, thank you, Daniel, for, for giving us an insight as to how to survive a robot uprising. No problem. Thanks for having me. This concludes this episode of Talking Robots with Daniel Wilson on how to survive a robot uprising. Thanks for listening. See you in two weeks. Talking Robots, the inside view on robotics. For more information on past and upcoming podcasts, visit our website at lis.epfl.ch.